Hey everybody, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode number 134, October 2020. Our guests this month are Al Hartley and Kelvin Dinkins Jr. Al is Managing Director of the Virginia Wadsworth Wirtz Center for the Performing Arts at Northwestern University, and Kelvin is the Assistant Dean and an Assistant Professor Adjunct in Theater Management for the Yale School of Drama, and he's the General Manager of Yale Repertory Theater. Sometime back, they wrote an essay published in HowlRound in June of 2020 called, We Don't Want Your Statements, American Theater, or The Solidarity We Actually Needed. It's a powerful essay that highlights several critical issues of equality, diversity, and inclusion in today's theater community. There's a link to the essay on the onstage, offstage listing for this broadcast. I was immediately struck by the gravity of the questions that you were asking, because you asked a lot of questions and you brought up a lot of difficult, difficult conversations. And I'd like to start off with, with a quote from the article, and we can discuss that from there. And the quote is, the day after Memorial Day was just another day in the American theater, but for black activists and theater practitioners, something shifted seismically. By Friday, theaters across the country had begun frantically wordsmithing their best attempts to speak out about Black Lives Matter. And this is the sentence that got me. What is known, however, is that the stirrings of support statements coming from the American theater community was too late and certainly not enough. Now, this is an obvious fact and a rather huge elephant in the room. So let's talk about why this issue, I mean, an issue that Black Lives Matter that has been around for such a long time, I mean, even before Colin Kaepernick took a knee, has rarely been addressed in theater. Why does that problem even exist there? This is Al, and to me, I think much of the issues in particular with equity, diversity, and inclusion with Black Lives Matter, uh, anti-racism, have been for so long uh, in a system and in a field that is designed uh, based off of inequity, just in the structure of how theaters have tended to operate uh, over the last 50 to 60 years. Looking back even at the early foundings of some of these regional theaters, many of these theaters were founded, um, you know, ideally with some sort of ethos in mind about serving the community. And because theater operates on such thin, thin margins that eventually theaters couldn't make enough money in their ticket sales to be able to sustain the organization and needed other outside help through donations in order to make their budgets, in order to make the art on stage. But I think in that founding of serving a particular region, serving a particular community, there's been something lost along the way as the regional theater system has tried to figure out how to operate. And I believe, and what inspired me to reach out to Kelvin to co-write this article, is that these issues have been underneath the surface of theater for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And I believe what America is seeing now 
um, in this pandemic, in this moment when we are all inside, when we can't look away, it's as allowing people to see how structures were built and to consider, and I think for the theater field, what is this this field and this this um this vessel that we utilize in order to make the art that we love, and why does it still exist that there are vast inequities in many areas of the theater mm-hmm. yeah that now white people are ready to acknowledge because it took the death of a black man being knelt on for nearly nine minutes to finally be seen. That's a hard question to answer. It's, uh, I think the answer is obvious, but there are reasons behind even that. I mean, um, it's not the first death of a black person that we've seen, though. It's the most recent, or probably the most recent, but those deaths have been going on for as long as anybody can remember. Having the theater community respond to that, to respond to members of its community, to reach out, to be inclusive, has never been, I mean, one one of its more important goals. And the inequity of the racial makeup of these theaters is the problem that we need to correct. There are people who they play to their subscriber base and trying to, yeah, and trying to keep theaters open in the first place is a hell of a job. Artistic directors probably spend more of their time trying to raise money than they do trying to figure out how to get their theater up and running. And it's reaching out to that community that looks for theater, wants theater, is familiar with theater, and it's not always there for every every part of that community. There was, there was a, a friend of mine who wanted to put on a play written by a friend of theirs probably about five, six years ago, and trying to get a response from the non-white section of the community, they had nothing to do with it. It wasn't part of their life. To them, it was just something that nobody brought to them, nobody taught them how to do, nobody opened up to them, and it became very impossible. And they ended up not doing the play because they didn't think there was an audience for it, which I think is also a huge problem because it's not only not being inclusive in the running of the play but and the running of the theaters, but it's also not being inclusive in reaching out to all members of the community to participate. And right. this is Kelvin. And and this is nothing new, right? For for right. the American theater that is in, uh, and centered in communities, especially where uh, there there is a, a, such a thing as the other side of the tracks, right? That the theaters are placed in sometimes these very comfortable areas where wealthy folks can access, uh, you know, arts and entertainment and and culture, depending on where they're located. And it automatically, just as you framed it, George, just now, becomes an us versus them, right? Those people who don't come to the theater, right? Without respect for cultural competency and the need to know what uh, about that community uh, makes it a community, right? You know, the relationship between theaters and its audiences has, has too far uh, gone uh, in the way of uh, being transactional. 
right? That it, that is here right. as a ticket, sit in the proscenium stage, be quiet in the dark for two and a half hours, and go home. This isn't a central meeting hub, right? Where where things are discussed, where where there are cultural exchanges, not just rooted in the subject matter of a play, but in the very sort of foundation of the building in being in a community. Yes. The the transaction has often gone one way, right? And and you know the way that some theaters have offered you know things back to the community is going into schools and and bringing up uh, teaching artists and and putting them in, in uh, underserved populations and they're underserved by the theater, right? Mm-hmm. But they are served yes. by many other things. I, I've I've sat in a lot of these conversations, as Al will probably attest, where you know as administrators we're figuring out marketing plans, we're trying to decide where to place the ads and um, and the posters in the community. Right? These conversations yes. continue to happen, but it's always about targeting and never a question about intentionality. Right? You know the the constant issue of of programming the black play in February is not a joke. It is actually a tactic that people think works, right? That, that now that they have been able to peg, uh, you know, something as, as, as colloquial as uh, putting August Wilson on in Black History Month and, and you know, you right. get black audiences, right? That the formula works and we become convinced that the black community in that circumstance is a monolith. They will always come to X, right? As, as opposed to thinking about how do we get people outside of our theater to feel welcomed at any time coming to our theater, day or night, walking in, no matter what the play's subject matter, and being a part of this experience. When I hear things like, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter statements being being tossed around yeah. from people who don't identify as Black and do not engage with Black people on a regular basis, I start to question what your motives are. And if they are purely transactional, uh, you should say that. You, you you should you should own that, right. um, and and not claim things um, for which you have no understanding. You uh, just mentioned that you've been working on ways to reach out, be more inclusive on a non-transactional level, both as administrators. Can you talk about what you found and and what what ideas you've come up with and how you plan to proceed with this? This is Al. Uh, what I found in particular. And I've seen this mostly at my institution at Northwestern University, where I run the Performing Arts Center, uh, where we are in a space of looking at what defining our community and thinking about what does it mean to define our community on the stages. And we had a conversation this summer um, after some statements were released. Um, and talking about the Performing Arts Center, uh, the ways in which the Performing Arts Center upheld white supremacy culture, mm-hmm. um, the ways in which the Performing Arts Center had not always engaged with the students and the community of students that are there. And we heard these. And part of, of, part of the work and building community and reaching out to the community in an intentional way simply starts at times with listening. I don't believe it ends with listening, but it starts with listening and understanding where is the community? Mm -hmm. What does the community need? 
um, how can we as an organization provide resources in order to enrich our community, which we are a part of, and not always allow the conversation or, as Kelvin so greatly put it, the transaction, frankly, right. be a monetary exchange for a show. Instead, it's asking deeper questions and engaging in an authentic way, telling the community and listening to the community and saying, this is going to be some, some parts of this work, in particular, particular building this community is going to be slow work over a long period of time. And at the same time, there are commitments that we can make it right now such as expanding how we are hiring BIPOC directors and artists mm -hmm. and overhire within our staff so that our community understands that we care about how the, our staff and our stages and who we bring in are reflective of the Evanston community, the Chicago community, and of the world and trying to redefine the organization without losing the fact that it is a performing arts center right. to tell a, a, a community that is now coming in that are mostly people of color that are of a multitude of identities to say our vision here is to build a bridge to the world for you that says – Every person on stage should see themselves reflected in some way throughout the course of our seasons, throughout our guest artists, throughout our staffs. And what is, what is hopeful about this work and sometimes disappointing about this work is that many of these ideas and these plans and these visions have been resting within and actively active in people of color who are working in this field for decades. As Kelvin said, these aren't new ideas. It's now trying to ask the field to look up in a mirror and smash the mirror that is in front of them and confront the fact that there are now demands and documents from identities who have been excluded from the theater and now coming to the forefront to say this is the new field that we envision and can envision together not a vision that simply comes from the institution through an email to their subscriber base saying that black lives matter right it's yes. about intention and it's about mm -hmm. authenticity mm -hmm. well it it's easy to send out an email and it's easy to send out a message on uh, a website saying, yes, uh, Black Lives Matter. But as you wrote in your article, when this is all over, we remember who loves us only when it profits them. And many, many theaters all of a sudden just acknowledged that, yes, Black Lives Matter. As far as changing what you were just talking about, recreating the system. You have to recreate the system in the faces of the people it's going to serve. And that's going to look an awful lot different than what it looks like now, which right. is not is not going to be 
an easy process. You know that. I know this. Um, at some point, you wrote something about people stepping aside and letting new people who are reflective of the community take the helm, take the reins, become a critical part of a theater that, as you said, builds a bridge to the world. How would something like that happen? I mean, it's it's going to take a great amount of time because there are a lot of people who are not going to want to step aside. You know, Al and I talk about this all of the time, right? You know, there is there is something special about being a black man trying to be a managing or executive director of a nonprofit theater. There is something special about it because it seems that when we look out across the field and, and you, we look at, you know, non-culturally specific theater, we become a rarer breed the sort of higher up the, the budgets go. And right. so you, you look at that dynamic and that reality, and, and my first question has always been why. Why has there been an entire uh, arts ecology that doesn't center black people and doesn't center black men? In, in its development, in its mentorship, in, in identifying us and understanding what it's like just to see us in a gathering of managers and realize how small the number is, right? To say nothing yeah. of our, our colleagues, uh, you know, um, BIPOC colleagues and women who are, sure. are attempting the same things, right? These are, I mean, some of the most qualified individuals walking around, and yet their opportunity is tied to someone moving out of the way uh, or founding their own theater, right? In, a, in an right. environment and ecology where we are oversaturated with theaters, especially in prominent zip codes across this country, for the most yes. part, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think LA is probably the only exception to that rule where there aren't hundreds of, of large Lort theaters around that city, right? Uh, but when you look at New York and you look at Atlanta and you look at Chicago um, and DC, right? The, the, there are a number of these sort of stalwart institutions, right? That have long, long sort of tenures of leadership. Uh, and so for us, it is a conversation about, well, when will that opportunity come up? And when that opportunity comes up, will you be considered, right? In the same way that you're, you're being, you know, you're in a job right now and your only right. chance at advancement is tied to one of those jobs becoming open. And, and that is what I want to focus on in this, because what I think we have, we have sort of uh, leapfrogged over is the dynamics of that system. Right, even attempting to to claim one of those spots is fraught and is is deeply entrenched uh, racism and centering of whiteness. I have yet to be interviewed by a panel of, of uh, BIPOC folks. Right, it, it is either exclusively or majority white for a lot of the boards and selection committees and search firms that operate in this country that control those opportunities, George. So when I think about you know, the things that we've overlooked in, in, you know, hitting send on that email of Black Lives Matters is the ways in which our organizations and their very structures are complicit in oppressing the, the, the opportunity and, and the chance for black people to actually attain leadership of our theaters. Um, it, it is more, uh, I would say, more prevalent on the artistic side, certainly. Right. That that is something you do see that there are occasionally more BIPOC artistic directors than there are executive and managing leaders. And that very dynamic just proves to me 
that we've ignored a lot of this system that has, has kept us from, from elevating uh, people in the black community to positions of leadership in nonprofit theater. Right. Uh, you know, yes. th th we're, we're not talking corporate America. Right. We're not we're not talking even, you know, they have sometimes more diversity than we do. Right. And it doesn't yep. make sense to me. You know, we're not here, to, you know, to, to collect ha half a million dollars in salary every year. This is on a nonprofit level and we right. still cannot break through in the same way. And, and it's about access and it is about access to opportunities that, you know, black folks have never had. Right. You know, wh whereas are the people that I'm in, you know, I'll just be, you know, transparent. The people mm -hmm. that I'm in searches with often have different experience levels. Right. Have, have have had years of experience in these roles over someone like me. And there aren't the, that many people who look like me with that same level of experience. Right. Because they have right. been kept out of these institutions. So Al and I, you know, we're, we're part of that that generation that is starting to come up and be, you know, seen for these opportunities. But the regional theater movement's over 60 years old now. The other big piece of that that, that Kelvin just, just hits on the head in many ways is, the, uh, is that idea of fostering and, and continuing to encourage people into management because executive directors and managing directors have so much sway over direction, over strategy, uh, mm -hmm. over policy, working with board directors, what committees are prioritized, and emphasizing the partnership with that artistic leader. And so it's understanding that those leadership positions are not only leaders for the theater field, but leaders of their individual communities. That this yes. is a person, that this is a role that board members will look to as to how the organization can secure the essential efforts in order to move forward in a strategically viable way. And if we don't have that focus, just as much as we're focusing on the artistic side in many ways, which I'm thrilled about over the last two and a half in particular years, yeah. but it's also the other side of the ledger, no, no pun intended, uh, the other side of the ledger where on the executive and managing director side, we're still so woefully behind. And so even structurally, we have to balance an idea where you may have a BIPOC artistic director, but they may not have a BIPOC managing partner. And that affects the institution yeah. just as much. And yeah. or a senior staff, you know, that, that is what I worried about, about the sea change of, you know, these historic placements of artistic directors who are from the BIPOC community at these leading regional theaters and having the knowledge that they are being dropped in to a very, very white organization. And I wonder about who has their back. I worry about the emotional labor it's going to take for them to forge relationships and to build their own teams. I worry about the resistance they will, they will feel uh, in, in, in not only the staff culture, but in the communities and the donor pools. Yeah. And those are the topics no one was covering, right? I, I feel like you know those folks are in there in those roles now, and mm -hmm. and they have to grapple with that. I'm assuming every single day, 
and those are the conversations I yeah. wish we had before we sent out Black Lives Matter statements. I wholly agree with you. It, an artistic director is, in many ways, the face of the theater. That's the person who, quote, in what once we break it down into crayon-sized letters, the theater is represented by the artistic director. And having a BIPOC person as an artistic director, you get to put diversity on the you know on the website and and on the brochures. But as you just mentioned, having one person of color in that particular role in an extremely large white run system has to be extremely lonely, has to be extremely difficult. There's a game that they have to play in order just to keep the system going. Is it because the boards are afraid of a person of color not having the, the correct abilities to run the theater in, in a positive way? Or do you think it's because they'll change the way the theater reflects the world? I think that's a great question, George. And I, I think that from my perspective, there is still, as, as Kelvin mentioned a little bit earlier, this, this perception of an experience deficit amongst people of color and framing much of how to search for an executive leader based on experience and apprenticeship. It's how, if you look at the history of theater, that theater has been passed down for millennia. Mm -hmm. It's not always something that you can just go and, and learn. It's something that people expect that you're going to have, quote-unquote, experience with. Even when we consider uh, graduate admissions for theater programs, which is sometimes the first places where people are being forged into artists of, of a different caliber, that we look towards experience as a marker for how seriously you're going to take this field and take this profession. And that continues to translate as people move up the ladder. And it gets to a point where it feels as if it is never enough, that there is always another yardstick that we need to cross, that it's almost as if because we are black men in our early 30s, because we haven't worked an additional 15 years, that is a mark against many people, mm -hmm. in particular mm -hmm. people of color. Right. Right. And we, we have to break up what we're looking for out of leaders. Leaders have a main, a, a core, core function it, to me is to, is to make a direction, to say here's where we're going and here's how we're going to get there. And if we take away and strip away how, mu how much money have you raised, how many staff members have you managed, how many uh, productions have you produced, you have to look underneath that and say, well, what are the things that we are looking for at the core for an executive leader? We're looking for someone who knows how to build relationships. Mm -hmm. We're looking at someone who yeah. we're, we're looking for someone who who can work in complex and dynamic systems 
uh, that engage multiple stakeholders. We're looking at someone for someone who knows how to take a project from start to finish, even if that project takes a year and a half to complete. Those are the, are the key functions that we're looking for, but we rely still so much on experience, so much on, on the dollar amount um, right. and the largesse of what we are supposed to do. We lose candidates and lose people because people get disheartened in the American theater that there will always be a white person who has more of the experience and looks more like the board and the institution that they're entering, yeah. as Kelvin said, yes. than, than yes. us. Well, it, they look like they're part of the team already. Right. And, and I right. mean, that, that level of comfort, right? The questions you asked, George, are, are, are central to, to my own thesis, right? Which is that, you know, when folks are looking at, you know, whether it be search consultants or search committees or, or staffs, when they are looking at the pool of candidates uh, and, and a person of color shows up in that list, uh, it is known to us by, uh, you know, ourselves and our colleagues who've gone through a similar experience, we are vetted more than our white colleagues. Yes, and always will be yeah. the mm -hmm. the benchmarks and the standards that are are expected of us in these interviews and in these meetings will always be higher. You know, I, one of the things I heard early on in my career from uh, an, another black practitioner is that white people don't trust black people with their money. That is why you see so very yep. few managing and executive leaders. Why you see so very few directors of development uh, or directors of finance. Um, and, and I didn't understand that. I didn't understand why that was. Where did that, you know, I think the question that we have to ask is where does the fear come from? Because white people have never embezzled. Ha! <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's never happened. Not in the, right. not in the history of the United yeah. States. <laughs> and and, and it's, it's so odd, right? Because, you know, I, and, and as Al was just, you know, wonderfully putting it, all of these step ladders talk, you know, we're, we're focused on leadership because I think it is an, an area that deserves more attention. Too often this conversation gets relegated to what's on stage. And George, for, for Al and I, that we know that that's part of the mission of the institution. We know how that goes. We know yeah. that there are slots and there are relationships that fill that programming on a consistent basis. But when we talk about the, the, the uh, administrators who are part of the home team, right, people go into that institution every single day and the managing director is there all the time. Right. That is part yes. of setting the tone and talking about who is resident. You know, you said earlier, like artistic directors are the face of the company. I don't understand why that is. You have two executive leaders in dual partnership for the most yeah. part and often. Who decided executive directors didn't need to be the face to the community uh, and, and needed to be relegated to thanking sponsors at opening night parties? That doesn't yep. that has never made sense to me. So when I think about our qualifications and the things we have to do as managers, I wonder uh, if, if folks are actually doing the deep work to, to have some analysis around the biases in place um, as people try to or black people try to navigate even having a career in nonprofit theater. I have not had a boss who has had an MFA. Mm. Mm. Well, right? I, I, I think yeah. the words career in uh, community theater are 
almost uh, mutually exclusive in the first place. Uh, theater has been digging itself out of the money hole year after year after year after year. It's expensive to produce. Ticket sales are through the roof in many, many cases, and it's not promoted as a, com a creature comfort thing. It's something you have to break out of your normal mode of operation to go do. So that's, you know, I mean, you, you can't watch it in a recliner, you know, wearing your skivvies and eating popcorn. Uh, until now. <laughs> true. Exactly. Very true. Right? That's, that's exactly how yeah, I now? watched Hamilton a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it, it is it is it is just about that conversation. And the reason I, I, I bring that up again is about the the sort of impossible standards that are, are, are lobbed back on us uh, as managers of, of color who are, are coming through this field and wondering um, what will be enough, right? You know, you know, I mentioned the MFA thing because that is something that they they sort of put boldly in those job statements and those job mm -hmm. profiles, right? And yet the people with the most experience who have held these positions for years, the people who are succeeding in these current searches, uh, sometimes don't have an MFA, right? So that that goes to show me, well, certain people need MFAs to make it an advance in this yeah. career path. Right. right. And, and, and although a lot of, uh, you know, my colleagues included will paint the, the regional theater and, and nonprofit theater model as dying, we're still here. Yes, we are. 60 years yeah. later, we're still here. And these top leaders and who are predominantly white are still taking home six figures with no student loan debt. Mm. Yep. So, yep. so we, 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 yeah. we really need to talk about the ecology in which we are training managers to go out into the field. Uh, with with degrees that cost more than they will make in their first years ever working oh, in nonprofit yeah, theater, sure. right? So yeah. if we're going to attack the system and <clears throat> elevate causes like Black Lives Matter and not throw back the 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 analysis of the 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 very system in which we operate, it's hollow to me because it means yeah. that you are seeing this with rose-colored glasses and thinking that you can appease me as a member of the black community with words on a page. We're used to words on a page. Seeing mm -hmm. action is what we are now requiring. And as Al mentioned, you know, the demands are there, you know, and that have been put out by We See White American Theater. Mm -hmm. And they're there, they've been given, they've been, uh, the field has been given a blueprint. And the real question is, George, not you know, how much time it's going to take for these white theaters to get their act together. It's about whether or not BIPOC community members will found their own ecology in response to white American theater okay. and take their talents elsewhere. That was going to lead into my next to next question. Um, I, I do want to sketch out where, where this is going to go in the next 10 years. I, I mean, think in terms of a just for the sake of argument, a 10-year plan. But before I get to that, um, this article rocked me. And it's an extremely powerful article. And I think everybody listening here should immediately, once this is done, power over to HowlRound to look up um, this particular article. It'll be on the listing for the show and read it. But what responses have you two gotten from your friends, colleagues, uh, people you work with, people who've read this, um, what 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 kind of kickback have you gotten from this? Positive, negative, uh, ambivalent? I can't picture most people being ambivalent about this. <laughs> Not at least in in this moment. Um, 
you know, in our country. Um, I, I've been just so humbled, at least, um, by the response from friends, colleagues, uh, coworkers that I, I work with about the the article. Uh, and it, it started with just a small idea. It sort of started with me calling Kelvin and saying, do you want to write an article to yell at everybody? And he said, yes. And we, <laughs> we, and we wanted to, we wanted to, to, to pour into words everything that we had felt and believed in some way that our colleagues, our friends, uh, fellow artists had felt as well. And this was just a, a moment for us as, as, as colleagues of, uh, of color, as black men working on the administrative side to, to sit and write something um, that was just our story, but, but was a, a, a macrocosm of, or microcosm of the field. And the response has been been just so overwhelmingly uh, positive, um, and being able to hear from people who simply say thank you, thank you for, you know, I was listening to to um, President Obama's eulogy of of John Lewis this morning, yeah. and it was about speaking truth in the face of an oppressive system. And that that's what his life was about. And I think this was just a tiny way in the story of the American theater and the future of the American theater to say this is us speaking a truth and a, a deep and raw truth that is not just Kelvin and I, but many of our colleagues who, who we see at conferences and speak with constantly and saying, I feel this too. As I said before, when I was reading this article, I was pretty much knocked for a loop just at the boldness and the simplicity of these questions that, once you think about it, have been staring us in the face, waiting for attention it's so obvious once you think about it, and it's so horrifically embarrassing as a white person to know that you've been a part of this somehow by not doing anything to remedy the situation. And right. they're, they're, they're brilliant questions. They are brave questions, and they needed to be asked. They need to be asked over and over and over. Absolutely. And, and George, to, to, to your point, um, What's staring those white folks in the face is their black colleagues, if they have them. Yeah. Right? Yes. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I can communicate that, you know, and speak for myself in saying that a lot of this article what was, you know, and, and what the words that went down from Al and I just came out of place of frustration uh, of spending, you know, not that many years, but almost a decade uh, working in, in, as a professional in the arts and watching people avoid and issue like statements of fear around these issues and around having a black colleague, my blackness was never acknowledged, you know, and, and, and yeah. as a staff member. And, and I can tell when that happens, 
right? Because when George Floyd was killed and Ahmaud Arbery was killed and Breonna Taylor was killed and our many trans um, siblings were killed, no one checked on me. Our, some of our colleagues, no one was checking on them to see how they were doing as people. Back to mm -hmm. how Al started this conversation, as humans. So a lot of the responses I got after this article, you know, from friends, from uh, practitioners in the field, um, have been largely positive. But, you know, folks, unlike what you're doing here today, George, they're not asking questions about it, right? I think folks are, are stuck in the place of digesting it. Um, so I haven't received anything sort of critical response or feedback otherwise, but folks want to be in dialogue certainly right. about it. And they thanked, uh, you know, Al and I for writing it. We've been asked to write again together. We've been invited on podcasts together. Um, our, our colleagues and, and classmates have all reached out and thanked us. But I, I'm wondering what the critical discourse will be about this, this article. And, you know, and I, I haven't even discussed it really yeah. in my own home institution, because this is something that I, you know, felt or feel as a practitioner going into these spaces. And, you know, I'm, I'm in a community at, at Yale School of Drama right now where mm -hmm. our students ask questions. They are part of that. And right. I, my hope beyond this, and, you know, and to, to folks who are listening today, is to be in dialogue about what Al and I are putting out there and to really ask those same questions. And again, when, for me, when it comes back to it, I really have to start with the accountability of have you visited the Black Lives Matter website and read their mission statement? And once yeah. you do it, come back to the article, because I think there's so much we, we've left unsaid um, in that article that I, that I mm -hmm. just want to be clear that this is the starting point. What may be stifling the dialogue is... And ignorance, and, and and I say that purely in a clinical term. There, there are a lot of people who want to talk about it, don't know how to talk about it, don't want to ask obvious, foolish questions, questions that folks like yourself um, have known all their lives, and folks like myself have no idea how to deal with, and rather than looking like we're pandering or rather than looking stupid or looking like we're afraid to get into something that's going to kick back on our white fragility because we're scared. But I think a lot of us do want to have these conversations. And I think a lot of us do want to help this situation doing whatever it is that we possibly can. I think a lot of us just don't know how to walk in here and say, Al, Kelvin, let's talk. I mean, but but that's the that's the thing, right? It, it, it's it's the you know one of my good friends in this field, Stephanie Rowland, is an incredible um, theater administrator producer and has been in a, a myriad of companies. You know, asked at a a a Lort conference in 2014 in Atlanta, and Atlanta is a special place for Al and I because that's where we're both from. Um, so, so thank you for lifting up John Lewis, by the way. Um, and, and so, you know, my, my friend Stephanie says, you know, to a room full of, of predominantly white managers at a, a conference where we're starting to bring up this question of equity, diversity, inclusion. And, you know, we read these extensive list of, of discussion guidelines, right, to prepare people for this conversation. And she, she, she remarked and, and she said it to this room full of people. I'll never forget it. 
she said it, it's it's odd. We've had this entire conference talking about many, you know, sort of difficult things. Why, when we're talking about race, equity, and diversity and inclusion, do we need all of these discussion guidelines? Where mm. does the fear come from? Yeah. Mm. And I will never forget it. And it is the one thing, George, that I would say to our allies who are who are saying that we want to have the conversation where we really want to do the work. I say, prove it. Right. And prove it by asking for yourself, where does your fear of getting into this come from? Is it a lack of practice? Is it a lack of of information? Is it a lack of proximity to blackness? Mm-hmm. I think it's probably all of those. And I also think it's possibly the fear of our own culpability. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I think that that is hard to. To, to reconcile a, as a moment for people, in particular for white people, um, of that complicity and of that guilt, you know, that, that there is a, a, a sense of, of history, of weightiness, you know, it, it's past is prologue, as, as we say. And that past and those experiences, wondering, well, where have I fallen down? Where have I not leaned, uh, leaned into a conversation or taken more action? You know, there can be often this focus of where are my failures and where have I not been built up? And mm-hmm. I agree with Kelvin of, you know, well, then you have to, you have to take yourself up and actually go and do the research, do the reading, you know, do the deep searching of yourself in terms of why have I supported a system that suppresses and oppresses other people, other human beings. And and that's, you know, again, going back to John Lewis, that's what he was getting to, Mm. is that it's about, it's just about a fundamental principle of thinking through how could a human being be treated so differently and so harshly based on the color of their skin in this country. And we have it over and over again. You know, time happens in cycles and revolutions. And in the future, yes. we, we will. I will not be surprised if we have this conversation again. Yeah. Elvin and I will probably be in our 50s saying, yep, we had this 20 years ago. <laughs> you know, that, that's where – but that's what happens with each new generation. And I think someone like John Lewis and C.T. Vivian and Joseph Lowry and, and so many of the civil rights movement leaders um, – recognize that each generation has their own call to answer. Each generation has their own view of the conversation that is the long arc of history. Mm. And in the future, we will continue to take steps, and hopefully, as Kelvin mentioned, this will encourage people to take bold and new steps in the right direction. You you put it out there, George, is about culpability, right? Mm-hmm. That fear of culpability as, as being a, a driving force and mechanism. Um, yes. And, and, and if you dig into that and interrogate that for yourself, you might discover that this is the work, right? Like you might mm-hmm. mess around and discover that this is actually how you undo some of these systems. And this is how uh, you take responsibility. 
uh, and are accountable in this moment, which is what some with I'll just speak for myself, what I am looking for in in folks who are, are willing to examine this work. You know, I don't want to call folks allies, right? Because there there is a responsibility that is inherent in allyship that some people, George, are not willing to do. And I think they need to confront that for themselves and be 100% honest about they, what they are willing to do to pretend to protect the humanity of art uh, or the humanity of others in this conversation about just doing art, right? And this is why it gets back to our point about some people will need to do that work and realize they need to remove themselves because they can't do that for that institution. They can't do that for their staffs. They can't do that for their boards, their artists or communities. They do not have the facilities to do it. Right. And so that whole portion of dismantling white supremacy and decentering whiteness means removing something. And sometimes at the end of the day, that is you. And if you're not willing to do that interrogation, if you're not willing to have that analysis, then I know that you're not willing to say and mean Black Lives Matter. In terms of steps, there is, as, as Kelvin mentioned, especially from the We See You and White American Theater demands, there's a roadmap there. And part of what the roadmap is asking in those demands or is demanding in those demands is to take a look at the system holistically and at the same time look at those systems in pieces. Ask yourself, why you are you might be trying to do a closed search rather than having an open and public search. Ask yourself why there are so many people in our production department that are like that are likely mostly white. It's it's asking on an individual and institutional level the basic assumptions of our field and that they, they are hard to unpack. Could you imagine telling people that you don't do 10 out of 12s? Everyone would look at you like you are a four-headed monster. <laughs> but that is – that's yeah. the type of step that you have to take in order to reach into a new future. You have to do it in, in some small and practical ways, and you have to look at the system at large as a whole to say what are some things that we just need to do collectively as a field – and what are things and, and Baltimore Center Stage put this out in their response to the demands um, and saying these are the things we are going to do and we are going to eliminate or that we are going to pay playwrights for rehearsal time. You know, what a concept. And it's not a hard concept. It's just it's something that you have to have the willingness and ability to put into action, even if it does mean that blowback. Yeah, rebuilding the entire system, pretty much. That's what it's going to take. Yeah. Yep. And and well, and again, what's important is that you start. Yes, it is yeah. important. And right now, it's possible that there is a golden opportunity um, to begin or continue the work on this. And I'm speaking because most of the theaters, if not all the theaters, now are closed dark, shut down, nobody's sitting in those seats, and we're doing everything by Zoom, which, being as it is, I'm glad we have it. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's one way of, of, of keeping this dinosaur breathing a little bit, but with a lot of theaters possibly not opening again, 
and a lot of theaters when they do open having to restructure their very foundations of what an audience is and what a production is it seems like there's the time for reinvention and whenever there is a time for mass reinvention a lot of changes tend to take place how would the two of you go about make affecting these particular changes if you let's say you had a 10-year plan I'm not saying COVID is going to last 10 years. I hope it doesn't. But like I said, practically over the next few years, what ideas would you throw out there? What encouragements would you make? And what actions would you put into motion? I would encourage and put into motion um, much more or more efforts towards um, those small action steps in particular at institutions. And it, it's recognizing that it, it's a long arc of time. But I think what, what the, the feeder field and the system can do is that each individual institution can take stock. And sometimes that taking stock, especially in the middle of, of this pause moment, is, again, unending some, up, uh, upending some assumptions that people make about how to make theater, what value there is in making theater, and why your institution is best suited to make theater, in particular for a community that is ever-changing. In 10 years, the community will look even more different than it does now. How will you prepare not only to survive strategically as an institution, but how do you plan to survive morally as an institution? We can't claim as a field to be about individual communities and, and regional communities if we are not digging deep into the well of the community and committed to a particular community to become involved. But that is going to take a long arc of actions and it's going to take some short arc of actions. And I would at least focus on those small, small things that will then grow into mid-sized things, that will then grow into bigger things. Because all of this work can be fruitless if the priorities and the values around anti-racism, equity, diversity, and inclusion simply are left to the leadership. It has to stick within the middle of the culture because that is what makes organizations. The leader can say everything that they want to and, and be a, a powerhouse for this work. But the real work in many ways is making sure the middle of the institution has those values just as much in order to move the identity of the institution forward. And that is difficult work. It's long work. But as Kelvin said, you have to start. And you yeah. can't let inertia – or frustration with slowness, which I think we all are these days. We were so instantaneous that it makes us believe that the work is not working. It's not always linear. 
And we have to understand that there will be moments where we take three steps forward and then somehow fall five steps back. But then in that five steps back, we may actually be walking another 10 steps forward. I like the way you put that. My major in college was uh, secondary ed and history, and I am a history buff. And I know exactly what you're talking about. For every sudden revolution that rocks the earth, there's a hundred years of prep behind it. There's a million different little incidents that contribute to this one final notable thing. So when you talk about it takes time to affect widespread change, I totally understand what you're talking about. And it, and it takes, I, I think it takes, you know, almost a perfect storm. You know, the, the responses to, you know, Black Lives Matter on behalf of our, our field um, were, were, I say nothing new in that if you look at movements such as the Ghostlight Project, right, which arrived on the scene mm-hmm. uh, on, the, on the eve of the presidential inauguration in 2017, when you, when you mark that, right, as being in response to something, Right. And, and here we are in 2020 in response to violent killings of black people that have continued and been pervasive, even in the midst of a pandemic. It, it is the pendulum swing back to the other side that says there's something we need to do. We need to react in this moment. And so, you know, and, and it isn't, the irony isn't lost on me that a lot of this change and called for change is happening in, a, in, in the, the rarity of our industry slowing down. We, on a typical day, are, are mastered by our own production calendars, right? If we were trying to have this discussion and talk about this seismic change to our field and we were still producing right now, I do not think you would see the level of attention that, that we are seeing on this level. So in terms of looking at a 10-year plan, I want theaters and governance bodies and audiences uh, to redefine what leadership in our field looks like. Because if you're not willing to do this work, and the work being uh, having a greater awareness and analysis around equity, diversity, inclusion, uh, labeling yourself and your institution in in theory and in practice as an anti-racist, if you're not willing to do that work, you cannot call yourself a leader. And it is one of the things that I, I wish our field would do better about. Because as you will see, the, yeah. the folks with the, the opportunities, the folks with the privilege uh, to, to step forward in this field will be asking those questions now. Because they are accountable to our, our entire industry and mm-hmm. how we make seismic change that is meaningful and lasting. And I think about the work that it will take to, uh, uh, to, to entrench anti-racist values into our governance structures, into our executive search firms, into our collective bargaining associations and service organizations, and the funders of our ecology. It will take the time and the analysis, and that mm-hmm. time and analysis will not happen without the presence of BIPOC people. And not to be tokenized, but to actually be elevated and put into positions of leadership with other people who are willing to do that work. So the, a 10-year, 20-year, 100-year plan yeah. should always center that because we are an art form that serves vast communities 
and identities. Just as diverse as the stories we see sometimes on our stages, it needs to be ingrained in the entire institution, and no one needs to be complacent about that. We should continue to challenge each other and have these difficult conversations. And yes, still make theater. Yes, still produce musical comedies. Still uh, uh, elicit joy um, at the end of the day and entertainment. Yes, we have to do all of those things. But if we're talking about morale and the workforce, a greater attention must be paid in order to make that lasting change that we, we claim we want. True. And for growth to occur, self-revelation must go hand in hand with it. Gentlemen, this has been a remarkable, wonderful conversation. I thank you both, Al Hartley and Kelvin Dinkins Jr., for taking part in this How can we find out more about you? Is there a way that any of our listeners can contact you if they have questions or comments? Uh, At least for me, um, I run uh, or or help run with my my partner um, a organizational consulting firm called ALJP Consulting, um, where we are uh, working on searches, working on, on planning around these issues as well as around strategic planning um, and, and other services. So folks who go to aljpconsulting.com, uh, uh, and that's where there's a contact form, has my, my email in there or sends directly to my email, um, so could, could have people comment and contact that way to uh, learn more about, about in particular this article, uh, but also uh, just some of our, our services there as well. And this is Kelvin. Uh, you can find me, obviously, on LinkedIn, but also at the Yale School of Drama, uh, which is um, drama.yale.edu. Excellent. Thank you both very much. Thank you, George. Thanks so much, Al. Yeah, you know it. Thank you both. Hey, kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet, or know someone in the theater who would make really good chat, send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Onstage Offstage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender. Onstage Offstage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again for listening, and please, kids, stay safe. Be careful for yourself and for those with whom we share this rock. And as always, happy theatering to all of you.